We're in the midst of a series, there we go, we're in the midst of a series on uh, generosity and are thinking about matters of stewardship, in particular because we're in the midst of a capital campaign that we're paying for this building and a couple of other facilities that are on our site that about a little less than 15 years ago our congregation decided that we would we'd enlarge our footprint on this site so that we could enlarge our, our ministry in the community and, and around the world. And uh, people like the Vahalas are the fruit of that. Um, I've been sharing with you some statistics from the last week. We're this close to paying off our debt. The little green slice is all that's left. And at the close of our service today, we'll take up our pledges for the next year. And we are within two years of being debt-free as a church. But for nearly 15 years, North Wakers have sacrificially given uh, towards this cause. Um, above and beyond our regular gifts to the church, and we'll do that again at the close of the service today. We'll make our pledges, and you should have received a card when you came in that will help you with uh, being able to do that. But whenever you think about this kind of stuff, the question is always, why? Why would I give my hard-earned money to this need? And I suppose there are lots of reasons. Um, You know, if, if you don't, uh, they, more, they might foreclose on us, right? The bank might foreclose. That would be a bad thing. So there's always motivations like that. There's, it's strategic time with less than two years left. I know some of you have been saving your money up, waiting for a strategic opportunity to give. This is it, right? It's real strategic now. Um, some of you may think it's kind of like an admission fee. I sit in the building, so I should pay for the building, right? It's kind of like going to the movies. Um, you just have an admission fee. Um, there's always guilt, you know, that's always an effective motivation. Um, but today I want us to think about a better motive, um, one that is much more joyful for us and one that I believe is much more pleasing to God. And I want to trace it through three stories in the Bible and then at the close of our service, we'll add our story to theirs and hopefully close in an offering that's worshipful um, to God. So if you'll bow with me, we'll start in the book of Exodus, chapter 35. You can find your way there, and I'd like to pray for our time in there. Father, take pleasure in all that we do. May it all be an offering to you. My words, our hearing, our obedience, Our voice is lifted in song. Lord, take pleasure in it all. It's all, it is all for you. And we offer it now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the first story that I want to talk about today is in Exodus chapters 35 and 36. And it involves the preparation to build a tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle uh, was kind of a portable, uh, portable worship space for the the people of Israel. Um, It was built precisely according to God's specifications. Um, And they used it while they wandered in the desert. It was portable. Um, Up until King Solomon built a temple. Now the, the word tabernacle is a translation of a Hebrew word that literally means dwelling place. Um, And the sacrifices were offered there that represented the people's need for a substitute for their sins. And uh, 
As we saw this year in our study of the book of Hebrews, the tabernacle and the sacrifices offered there are one of the many Old Testament pointers to Christ. Um, Hebrews chapter 9 says that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So all of this that we're talking about today, all these details about the tabernacle, they, they're pointers to who Christ is and what he's done. Um, so we're going to start in chapter 35, but I want you to skip back a few pages in the book of Exodus to chapter 25 and we'll start there and you'll see how they went about building and furnishing this tabernacle this tent where the presence of God would dwell and the priests would go to offer the sacrifices starting in chapter 25 verse 1 we read that the Lord said to Moses speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And if you drop down to verse 8 in that chapter, we find out why. Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. So the people did what God commanded them to do. They brought gifts, a glad contribution to the materials that were needed for the tabernacle. Okay. Now, scoot ahead 10 chapters to where we're going to spend our time, most of our time. Um, you see the same theme in chapter 35, verse 4 and 5. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And then a little farther down in verse 20, we see how that happened, how that unfolded. So watch, as, as starting in verse 20, how that contribution came about. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, every one whose heart stirred him, and every one whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. And so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, they brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. And everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands. And they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. So, bottom line, lots of people brought lots of stuff. 
uh, to help build the, the tabernacle, right? But there, there are two really significant observations, and you may have heard them because they happen over and over and over again that I want to underscore for us this morning. And the first is just this. They are making these offerings to the Lord, okay? And, and you'll, you hear it. Look, look just at the verses. I'll, I'll run back through them. In chapter 25, verse 1 and 2, the end of verse 2, it says, From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me, the Lord says. In chapter 35, verse 5, it says, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. In verse 21, they brought the Lord's contribution. In verse 22, every man dedicated an offering of gold to the Lord. Everyone in verse 24 who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And in verse 29, it says they brought anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. So again and again and again, they were doing something more than, than building this tent. It was for them an offering to the Lord. And, and I want us to keep that in mind uh, today as, as we make our commitments for the coming year. It's really not primarily about paying the mortgage and getting it to the bank. Above all else, what we do today, just as it was in their day, is unto the Lord. It is the Lord's contribution. We want this to be worship. Not mere obligation. Definitely not mere obligation to the bank. So that last verse there, verse 29, it calls it a free will offering to the Lord. Right? A free, the language of free will offering, that really underscores the second observation I want to make on all this bringing of stuff that they did to build the, the tabernacle. And that is that it was a glad and willing act, okay? They did this gladly, they did this willingly, and you hear it over and over again. Back in chapter 25, when they were first instructed, it says, every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. In chapter 35, verse 5, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Down in verse 21, Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him brought the Lord's contribution. In verse 22, all who were a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings. Um, verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. Verse 29, the people of Israel whose heart moved them brought a free will offering to the Lord. So, so again, over and over and over again is this emphasis. Their hearts were stirred. Their spirit moved. Their, they had a willing heart that moved them to do this. The idea is that they did this gladly. They were eager to do it. And it was willing. Okay? It was a free will offering. Not a tax. Okay? Now, Free will offering is not the language that you hear from the IRS, right? You don't hear decrees that say, on April 15th, everyone whose heart stirs him and everyone whose spirit moves him shall bring a free will offering to the IRS, right? Because no one would bring anything, right? That's a tax. 
Um, the closest thing you get to a free will offering is that little $3 presidential box, right? You can, you can check on your income tax return. Uh, and it's fascinating. Uh, in 92, or in 77, right after they started this, 29% of taxpayers checked that box. And then by 92, it was 19%. And in 2013, only 6% of taxpayers checked the box and give a free will offering to help pay for the presidential election, however that works. But in Exodus 35, everybody wanted to check the donation box. Their hearts were stirred, men and especially women. There's a tremendous emphasis on the women's generosity in Exodus 35. And watch what happens next. Flip to chapter 36. We'll look at the first few verses. And Moses called... Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill. It's a beautiful expression. Every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill and everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. There's that emphasis again. Their hearts stirred them up. The craftsmen were stirred to do this work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and they said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. It's fascinating. They had to issue a command to stop giving. They had so much stuff that had been given, um, more than enough. And that, to me, begs the question, why? Why were they so generous that they had to be forcibly stopped by Moses from bringing more? And there's lots of reasons, I suppose, but there's one that I want to make sure we don't miss. And I believe it's the core of their extraordinary generosity. And it should be ours, too, I think. And it's rooted in what happened in between chapter 25 and chapter 35 of the book of Exodus. So flip back a page or two to chapter 32. And Moses is up on the mountain where he's receiving the Ten Commandments from God. Okay? And we find in chapter 32 verse 1 that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, um, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Now, even if you've never heard the story before, you can imagine that this does not go down well with the Lord, right? Look at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 32. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, and therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I make a great nation of you, Moses. Now Moses, in turn, it is a fascinating story. If you just wanted to read from chapter 25 to 35 later this afternoon, uh, Moses intercedes for the people. And in a sense, at one point, he even offers his own life in their place. And God responds to his intercession with mercy. Again, in chapter 32, verse 14, it says that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And so, this, I think, helps us understand and answer that question. Why were they so incredibly generous? What happened between chapter 25 when they were told to do it and chapter 35 when they did it extraordinarily so? And it's grace. They had experienced grace. They had been, we saw it in verse 10, right? They had been faced with God's wrath. Where it says, God says, my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. That's what they were facing. But they, were, they received mercy instead because of Moses' intercession. The intercession of a man who offered himself on their behalf. This should sound vaguely familiar to you. Right? This is the shadow of Christ playing back onto the Old Testament. Their giving was fueled by the reality that they faced wrath and they got grace. That's why Moses had to say, stop giving. (laughs) Enough already. Um, It's interesting. From our perspective... The New Testament uses very similar language to describe our situation. This language of wrath and grace. Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's easy for us to to misplace this this truth. Um, that, That this was our destiny. That what we faced for our private, personal rebellions against God. The Bible calls them sins. 
What we faced for that is the same thing the children of Israel faced for that. The wrath of God. But we, just like they did, we got grace instead on the basis of the intervention of a man on our behalf, Jesus. It's too easy for us to forget that it's not because we're good enough. It's because of grace. Because someone else interceded and intervened on our behalf. It's easy to forget that. Uh, Pastor Ed Young uh, illustrates this really helpfully. He says, uh, I took my family to a high school football game. And during the third quarter, my daughter Landra said, uh, Dad, can I have some money to buy some candy? He says, no, I'm not a big candy guy, but I said, Landra, here's $5, go buy some candy. She comes back with a sack full of Skittles. And as I watched her eat them, I said, "Uh, Landra, can I have some Skittles? She said, no. I said, Landra, just give me a couple. She said, they're mine. My little daughter, he says, didn't understand several things. Number one, she didn't understand the fact that I was the one who bought the Skittles for her. Number two, she didn't realize my strength. I'm strong enough to forcibly take those Skittles from her and eat every one of them. If I wanted to, I could have done that. Number three, she didn't understand that I could have gone to the concession stand, put 300 packages of Skittles on a credit card, and come back to her and given her so many Skittles that she couldn't have eaten them all in a year. And then he says, we all have Skittles. Some of us have a pretty nice-sized pile of Skittles. Others have a medium-sized pile of Skittles. And some of us have little bags of Skittles. But our loving God comes to us and says, would you bring me some Skittles? Just a few Skittles. He says, what do you think our reaction is? No, they're mine. God says, just bring me some Skittles. But we still say, "Uh uh-uh. I made those Skittles. I own those Skittles. He says, like my daughter, we don't understand several things. One, God is the one who gave them to us. They are his Skittles. He bought them, and in an instant, God could take all of our Skittles. Also, we don't understand that God could rain so many Skittles on our lives, we wouldn't know what to do with them. We couldn't possibly spend or enjoy them all. See, sometimes we forget that it's all grace. It's all God's mercy and kindness to us. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 makes it clear, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you get grace instead of wrath. That's why they were so incredibly generous. That's why Moses had to say, enough already. They got grace instead of wrath. Second story I want us to think about is super familiar to a lot of you. You learned uh, aspects of it as a child. And so we'll go through it pretty quickly. It's in Luke chapter 19, if you want to turn there, and it goes like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named 
Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was a wee little man. As the Irish put it, evidently. Um, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And they were hated because they worked with the occupying Roman forces and they would steal for personal gain. It's kind of a pyramid scheme and it appears that Zacchaeus was at the top of the pyramid because he was a chief tax collector and evidently he was good at it because it says he was rich. And he was short. Too short to even see Jesus through the crowds that had gathered after the incident with the blind man that had just happened previously. Um, But Zacchaeus would not let that stop him. No hostile crowd of tall people was going to keep little Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus. And so in verse 4, he ran on ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way, Jesus was. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus hurried and came down. And Jesus received him, or he received Jesus joyfully. And so Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus into his home gladly. And everything he'd hoped for was, was this is beyond his wildest dream. He hoped just to see Jesus. And now he's, he's sharing a meal with him in his home. And Of course, not everybody's excited about Jesus' choice of dinner partners, right? Verse 7, when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And one writer suggested that tax collectors to them were looked on with all the fondness we would look on a drug dealer. But evidently, it was worth it in Jesus' eyes, the risk to his reputation, to spend a meal, to share a meal with Zacchaeus, and it changed Zacchaeus' life. Because in verse 8 it says that Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This This is a transformation. He goes from being a renowned thief to a renowned philanthropist, right? Just just because he shared a meal with Jesus. He gives away half of everything he has. And he was wealthy. His stingy, greedy heart had become wildly generous. And he committed to right his wrongs. Um, The Jewish practices based on the Old Testament were that in some cases you would have to pay back twice as much as you pilfered. Uh, If you were a cattle rustler, it could go as high as four or five times as much. Um, But Zacchaeus voluntarily undertakes the severest of penalties so as to make things right with anyone he had cheated. And it's important, you know, as you hear this story, this is not a parable, okay? This is not one of those stories Jesus made up with all kinds of hyperbole and exaggeration to make a point. This is an actual encounter with an actual man. And as a a rich tax collector, this, this wee little man named Zacchaeus 
likely had cheated a lot of people along the way. So this fourfold recompense he committed to making was probably not some empty promise. It's going to cost him. So he moves from renowned thief to renowned philanthropist, and that's what we should remember Zacchaeus for, his generosity, not his stature. Okay. For though he was a wee little man, this was surely no wee little gift. Okay. And again, the question is, why? And Jesus answers it in the next couple of verses. Verses 9 and 10, Jesus said to him, Today... Salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus declares that this amazing heart change can be attributed to one thing. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house today. That is, Zacchaeus' sins that had so separated him from God and and given him a future of facing God's judgment and wrath, have been remedied. His relationship with God has been made right by way of Jesus. And he's now a spiritual son of Abraham. See, Zacchaeus was lost, but now he's been found. And this thief was welcomed by the very son of God. That's grace. And giving becomes Zacchaeus' glad and worshipful response to grace. That's how it works. Get grace. Give worship. Give, give. There's a fascinating story in USA Today a number of years ago. Uh, It goes like this. It says, the secret Santa has been revealed. It's Larry Stewart, 58, a successful businessman from Lee's Summit, Missouri. Prior to the Christmas season of 2006, Stewart announced that he was, in fact, the secret Santa who has been anonymously doling out $100 bills to the needy every Christmas for the past 26 years. Stewart decided to go public after it became apparent that a tabloid newspaper was going to reveal his name. Now he hopes to inspire others to become secret Santas. Uh, It's interesting, though, how the practice started. He says, in the winter of 1971, Stewart was working as a door-to-door salesman, and the company that he was working for went out of business. And so uh, he quickly ran out of money, and Stewart hadn't eaten in two days. He went to the Dixie Diner and ordered a breakfast. He eventually admitted that he couldn't pay for. And Ted Ham, who owned the diner, sympathized with Stewart, and he acted as though he found a $20 bill on the floor under his chair. And he said, son, you must have dropped this. And Stuart says, it was like a fortune to me. And I said to myself, thank you, Lord. And right then I made myself a promise. I said, Lord, if you ever put me in a position to help other people, I will do it. And over the years, Stuart estimates that he has given away as secret Santa doling out $100 bills around $1.3 million dollars. Get grace instead of wrath. Get your meal paid for instead of getting thrown out of the restaurant. And what do you do? You give. It's just what you do when you get grace. That's why Zacchaeus gave. And Larry Stewart too. 
Let me, let me show you one more real interesting story because it's so overlooked and it's super short. It's only three verses long. It's in Luke chapter 8 of your Bibles. And it goes like this. Uh, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages producing and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is really interesting. Evidently, Jesus didn't always just travel with the 12. Sometimes he had a bit of an entourage, and it involved a number of women who traveled with them. But they not only followed Jesus, they funded him. Did you ever wonder how Jesus paid for three years of itinerant travel? How, where do you get the money for that, to, to feed 12 guys who are tagging along with him? And evidently, there were a number of, of donors, especially women. Again, the generosity of women is so underscored here. Um, who supported um, Jesus' ministry. And so, you, again, if you say, why would they do that? And the answer is exactly the same as the others. It's because of grace. See, every one of these women, it says, had been healed by Jesus of an infirmity or an evil spirit. And giving to his, support, to his ministry to support what Jesus was doing was just a natural response to grace. This author, Justin Borger, wrote a book on the generosity of God, and he tells a story about a homeless woman who lived under a bridge in downtown Chattanooga, Tennessee. Her name was Tammy. And after they'd provided, his church had provided Tammy with some basic hygiene supplies, um, he didn't hear from her for a few days, actually a few weeks, until she called and let him know that uh, she had been raped. And after Borger brought her to the hospital, um, Tammy started attending Borger's church, and the church also started providing vouchers so she could buy food and other items. But Borger said that giving her the vouchers created a problem because Tammy kept giving the vouchers to other people. Borger told her, Tammy, you need to keep this for yourself, otherwise you're going to run out of food. But living under the bridge meant living with other needy people, and it was unthinkable for her to receive a gift and then not share it with others. So with an incredulous stare, she asked Borger, why can't I give to some too? And he insightfully writes then, the good news is that God not only made us to be recipients of his grace, but also participants in the movement of his own generosity to others. Get grace, give it away. Okay. It's just what grace does. It's how it works. It's how it flows. Because we were under God's wrath at one time, but now we've received mercy. Romans chapter 5 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, 
we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? We were under God's wrath and we were given grace. So we give. And that, what that means is that honestly, giving today makes no sense at all without Jesus and the grace that he brings. In fact, I would discourage giving if you have not yet welcomed the grace of Jesus, at least giving in, in this scenario. John Ortberg tells the story of a young man. His name is uh, John Gilbert. And at age five, John was diagnosed with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, which is a genetic progressive debilitating disease. And at age 25, the disease finally would claim John's life. But when, uh, as he progressed, um, he was invited to a, uh, when he was a little boy, he was invited to a National Football League fundraising auction. And um, there was one item that caught his eye, little John's eye. It was a basketball that had been signed by players of the Sacramento Kings professional basketball team. And uh, he so desperately wanted that ball that when it came up for bid, he felt his hand raise up into the air. But not having the funds to participate, John's mother quickly put his hand back down. And they watched the bidding go up and up and up. It rose to an astounding amount compared to the value of the ball for sure, but even compared to other items at the auction. Finally, one man made a bid that no one else could possibly match, and he won the prize. The man walked to the front, claimed the basketball, but instead of going back to his seat, the man walked across the room and gently placed that ball in the thin, small hands of the boy who had desired it so strongly. And the man put the ball into the hands that would never dribble a ball down the court, never throw it to a teammate, never fire it from the foul line, but those hands would cherish it as long as they lived. John writes, it took me a moment to realize what the man had done. I remember hearing gasps all around the room and then thunderous applause and weeping eyes. He says, to this day I'm amazed. And then he says, have you ever been given a gift that you could never have gotten for yourself? Has anyone ever sacrificed a huge amount for you without getting anything in return except the joy of that gift? And today I want you to know that the answer to that is yes. It can be yes for you. Because today Jesus is offering you a gift that you could never have gotten for yourself. Payment for your misdeeds and wrong thoughts for your sins. And it's all of grace. Um, George cited it earlier. It's the most familiar verse in the Bible and it says it so beautifully. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So today, before you give, receive. Receive the grace of God through Jesus' death and resurrection. Receive it as though it's enough 
to cover all your secret dark thoughts and all your wrong deeds because it is enough. It's enough to wipe it all away. And then when you've received grace, then you can give. And you can give like you mean it then, right? So, those of us who are here today, and we know a grace that's greater than our sin, I hope that this act of giving we're about to to commit ourselves to would be for you glad worship from a heart moved by grace. A contribution, as they said in Exodus, to the Lord. And I want you to know, I'll give you my solemn promise as your pastor. If you give too much, I will stop you. Okay. I, I will do that for you if, if it comes to that um, today. So if you came prepared to make your commitment today for the coming year, uh, that's fantastic. Um, you'll have time. The worship team, you guys can come on up now if you'd like. The uh, worship team is going to lead us in a closing song. You'll have some time during that song to to pray and reflect and finalize that commitment and express it on the card that you were given and bring it down here to the communion table during the song and leave it there as an act of worship, of response to grace uh, to God today. But um, if you need more time, if you're not prepared, that's okay too. Um, Unplanned and especially unprayed about commitments are rarely our best ones. So if you need some more time, take the card home today, pray about it today, and then you can email that card into the office at office at northwake.com tomorrow uh, morning, or you can drop it by the office tomorrow. That, that would be perfectly fine too. And um, So just to, just to set a record for stories told in a sermon, uh, let me tell you one more just to encourage you as you get ready to bring your offering. There's a guy named Mike Herman, and he writes, he says, I've been going to professional baseball games and trying to get a souvenir baseball for as far back as I can remember. He said, a foul ball, a home run ball, even a batting practice ball, anything would do. He said, I was taking in batting practice for the St. Louis Cardinals as I watched Mark McGuire and his teammates, this is a number of years ago, I got to know a five-year-old boy who was also trying to get a ball. His name was James. And he tried hard to pronounce the players' names as he politely asked for a ball. James would say, Mr. Timlin, that's uh, Mike Timlin, he was a re- relief pitcher. Could I have a ball, please? Um, he said, before I knew it, my mission became getting a ball for James. For about 20 minutes, I told him the names of the players who had a ball near the fence we stood behind. And the players turned and smiled as James tried to say their names. Still, no ball. Finally, I told James he could have my ball if I caught one. He says, I'd been unsuccessful in catching a ball for almost 28 years, so that felt like a safe promise. (laughs) But he says, I wouldn't be telling this story if you didn't know what happened five minutes later. I caught a ball. And yes, I gave it to James. And then he says, I wonder how often God waits to give us something until we are willing to give it away. And so let me invite you um, to bring your commitments as an act of worship the next year to the table. And then, uh, friends, 
we've received grace from our God. Let's, let's worship. Stand. Let's worship God together.